Well, brethren, sometimes we forget who we are. And it's so easy sometimes even for our older members to forget, in a sense, the unique approach that we have in the living church of God. A lot of our younger people, even our own kids, our own young people who've grown up in the church, some of you young people here for the wedding may or may not be uh, baptized or members of the church one way or the other, but who are we? We need to think about that deeply because that's very, very important. And it is something we want to focus on this afternoon. You newer members and need to know, and I'm preaching, I might tell our guests, not just to you, but the cameras there, we send these tapes, videotapes, all over the world. So they'll be hearing this in a few weeks down in Perth, Australia, Cape Town, South Africa, and uh, perhaps Malaysia, and uh, various places all over the earth. So we have to bear that in mind. I don't look at the tape and preach to them as much as I should, but they're there, believe me, uh, several thousand of them. So I'm talking to all of our people, and you young people here and around the world, you need to know who are we? What is the living church of God? How are we different? What is it really all about? And why is it so important to be a member of the church of God? We do need to understand these things very, very much, and we need to understand what the Bible actually teaches, because most of you understand this, but every now and then, with these books out like the Da Vinci Code and other books challenging the Bible, we have a very wonderful book let out, Dr. Winnell's The Bible, Fact or Fiction, and you go through that, and of course I've gone through books like that for, frankly, 57 years since I came to Ambassador College trying to prove and reprove and reprove the Bible, because people are always trying to put doubts in your mind about it. But the Bible says things that no other book says, not only about the purpose of life, but specific prophecies affecting the major nations, major cities of the world, specific things, not generalizations like Mother Shipton's tales and Nostradamus and all that stuff that's just sort of vague and hard to pin down. I'm talking about where specific things are mentioned in the Bible over and over. And dozens of them have already come about just like God said. And others are underway right now. This book is the revelation of the mind of the God who gives you life and breath. Every one of you in this room. All the rest of you around the world. This book is the mind of God in print. And it's good that we really understand that. So we need to understand what the Bible says about who we are and what we ought to be. Let's start out in the Bible with the Apostle Paul, who said he labored more abundantly than they all, whom God used to write more books in the Bible than any other man. He wrote 14 books in the Bible, but turn to Colossians, if you would. And those of you who brought your Bible, some of our visitors may not have one, but in our church we do normally bring a Bible and check up. So as Mr. Armstrong used to say, check up on me, prove these things, see what the Bible actually says. And Colossians... The book of Colossians in your New Testament, chapter 1, I'm going to begin reading here from Paul's book, Colossians 1, verse 24. He says, And now rejoice, I rejoice in my sufferings for you. Paul went through all kinds of trials and tests, thrown in jail, beaten up, stoned, left outside Lystra in a pool of blood, for they threw rocks at his head. And he got right back up and went right on again, preaching and teaching the word of God. I rejoice in my sufferings and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Jesus had a physical body when he was here on the earth. Now we are his body collectively. 
We're doing his work. We carry out his message. We get his message out in print as well and on television and over the radio and all the other means right here in these services around the world. So if Paul was doing that for the sake of his body, the church, the church is the body of Christ, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Notice the next verse, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. Brethren, men all over the world have longed to understand that great question. Why am I here? Why was I born? Why does God allow human suffering? What is it all about? That's one reason I came to Ambassador College 57 years ago. I'd grown up in a mainstream Protestant church in the Midwest, and my friends grew up in the various ones. I was a Methodist. Some of them were Methodists, Baptists, Presbyterians, other groups of the Protestant churches. They didn't understand. Sometimes some of them would get drunk, and as they were sobering up, well, they would begin to talk, well, what's it all about? Are we going to have to fight Harry Truman's war, you know, and they were worried about Korea at that time and all this other stuff, and they were frustrated. They didn't know. Sometimes their hero, our high school football hero, uh, Bill Steinbeck, had sent his body back uh, and when the war, that was in the First or the Second World War. But anyway, these things happened. We all had had friends that had been killed in the Second World War, Korean War, we wanted to understand why. If we're going to go over there, why? What's it all about? What if we die? What's the meaning of our life? The mystery which has been hidden from ages, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, lots of ministers in these Protestant churches have deep, rich, resonant voices. They sound very educated, and they are. They're educated in the education of this world, and they'll read over this, you know, the glory of Christ and so on, that they don't explain it. They do not understand it at all. It just is a rich-sounding word, and they don't know what it means, and they never do explain it. I've heard them over and over. They have no idea what they're talking about. Most of them don't even try to explain it. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Most of you in the church know that if Christ really does live in us, someday, folks, we're going to be like Christ, literally. That is, like Christ is today, right now, because the real Christ of the Bible is right this moment, sitting at the right hand of God in heaven. His face shines like the sun. His voice booms out like rolling thunder across the plains. That's the Christ of the Bible, not little Lord Jesus away in a manger somewhere, but the Christ of the Bible. And we're going to be like that someday. We will see him like he is, and we will be like him. We will be full sons of God, not pseudo-sons, not adopted sons, but real sons that have come right out from God. The glory that we will have at that time is almost incomprehensible to the human mind. But our Father is making us into full sons that's why we're here, the glory of Christ. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we present every man perfect. Doesn't mean we've got to be perfect in the human sense, but certainly without above reproach, as the word is sometimes translated. Completely spiritually mature in Christ Jesus. 
in union with Christ, as the song said, walking with Christ, walking with God, and Christ is God. To this end I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. God's Spirit worked mightily in the Apostle Paul, and God grant that it can move mightily in every one of you in this room and you young people someday. If you really want to understand and you really want to get with it and you really want to fulfill the purpose for which you're drawing breath today, this can have meaning to you, tremendous meaning, if you'll let it, if you'll open your mind and open your heart, so to speak, so you can really understand. Who was this Christ that Paul is talking about? How could he be so important? Well, let's begin to get a little bit of that background here, and I'm going to go rapidly because there's so much I would like to cover I would like to preach you till midnight like the Apostle Paul did <laughs> on one occasion, but we won't be doing that. We've got a wedding tonight and other things going on. Turn with me back to the Gospel of John, John chapter 1. As Mr. Armstrong used to say, Mr. Herbert Armstrong, this goes back even before Genesis 1 verse 1. <laughs> It really does when you understand. This is the real beginning. In the beginning was the word. The Greek expression here, translated word, is L-O-G-O-S. Logos, it means spokesman, a revelatory principle, the one who did the speaking. There was at the beginning the one we now call God the Father and the one who was the second person in the family of God, the spokesman, the word. And the Word was with God, he was with God, the Father, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. God created all things through Jesus Christ. You'll find that stated just directly in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 9. God created all things by Jesus Christ. And without him, nothing was made that was made. As a powerful spirit being, God used him to create everything because he and the Father are one, as he said. One in purpose, one in basic approach, one union in the sense they're totally together in what they do and working together. It's a perfect team. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Shows later he came to his own, and the, his own did not receive him. The Jews rejected him. They killed him instead. But as he, many as he uh, received, as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. And brethren, the word name in both the Hebrew and the Greek language means everything about the person. Their personality, their character, their office, their power, everything they stand for. That's what it's about, who believe in everything about Jesus Christ. So we've got to believe everything about Jesus Christ, frankly, if we fulfill the purpose. And he was in the beginning with God. All right, let's go to John 5, if you would, briefly. The fifth chapter of John now. And you will see here in verse 37... John 5, and I'll start reading, I guess, in verse 36, just to catch the story flow a little bit. John, uh, Jesus told these Jews, but I have a greater witness than John's, that is, John the Baptist, for the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. 
And the Father himself who sent me, Christ was sent from the Father, has testified of me. You have neither his voice or have heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. Not at any time have they ever seen God. But he was talking obviously about God the Father. Never had they. So let's bear that in mind as we go to other things here. Now let's go back to the beginning as it is in Genesis at least. In Genesis 1 and verse 1 as the beginning of the Bible is at this point. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We don't know when that was. You young people, please don't think that we think it was 6,000 years ago. We have never thought that, never said that. Some so-called creationists think that. That's silly. There are every evidence that things existed maybe billions of years ago. Remember, the scientists disagree by billions of years among themselves because they don't know. They just know it was way, way back, perhaps hundreds of millions or even billions of years but way back at the beginning, there was a creator. All of this didn't just happen. And we can prove that over and over again. That's not my topic today. Then after creating and recreating, in a sense, the particular earth we're living on and the, the putting the animals on it as we have today. And verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image. Again, notice you young people, you new people. He doesn't say my image. He says, our image, more than one, two personalities involved in our image according to our likeness. All the translations know this. It's in the plural. It's not just one being according to our likeness. And let them have dominion. Dominion, as you know, means control. It means rule. It means government. Let them have dominion over this whole creation. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. The woman was created to be a help to the man, but she was created fully human on the same level of existence as the man. And yet there are religions today, as you know, that put the woman way down and treat her like a dog. And that's wrong. The Bible does not do that at all. Man and woman were created in the image of God. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over all this creation, as he goes on to describe part of it. From the beginning, God intended man to have dominion, to learn to have rule, to make decisions. But in the beginning, there was more than one. And we know that that second one was the word the Logos, the spokesman who later became Jesus Christ. If you turn over to chapter 15 here of this wonderful book, Genesis, Genesis 15, verse 1, after these things, the eternal, capital L-O-R-D, means the ever-living one, by the way, in the Greek, Yahweh, or the Hebrew, I mean, the eternal came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and exceeding great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless? And then he promised him a child, and he took him outside in verse 5, and he said, Look now toward the heaven and count the stars. Look up at the magnificent here, cosmos out there. Count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to them, So shall your descendants be. Millions and hundreds of millions of people coming eventually from Abram, whose name was later changed to Abraham. 
and he believed in the eternal, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Who did Abraham believe in? He believed in, as the New Testament would say, the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> he wasn't yet the Lord Jesus Christ, but this was Christ. This was the second person because I've just got through reading you, and I can read you all kinds of other scriptures. Man never heard the voice of God, that is God the Father, at any time. It was Christ through whom God created the earth. It was Christ who spoke to Abraham. He was the Logos. He was the spokesman. He's the one who dealt with Adam and Eve and talked to them in the Garden of Eden. He's the one who dealt with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and finally on down to Moses and then David, the one who became the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the second person in the God family, and he did do all that. Turn to chapter 26 now, brethren. Chapter 26 of this wonderful book, Genesis. And here he's talking about Isaac. And he says to Isaac in verse 2 or 3, Sojourn in the land, and I will be with you and bless you. And for you and your descendants I'll give these lands, and I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father. And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. So this great promise God gave Abraham came right on down through Isaac and then through Jacob. I will give you your descendants all these lands, and in your seed, your descendants, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And brethren, our older brethren, I hope all understand this, that was dual. They are blessed through the sacrifice of Christ and through that one seed, Jesus Christ, as the Savior spiritually. But all the nations, frankly, of the earth have been blessed through Abraham's seed in another sense. That is especially through the seed of Joseph, the United States and British Commonwealth peoples at the time of the end were to be given the greatest national blessings of any peoples that had ever existed. And we did share that to a great extent with others. We're the ones that sent the 600 ships to the people of India when they were starving. We're the ones who helped the nations settle World War I. We're the nations who helped them settle World War II. We're the nation whose nations which have been the balance of peace in this world for about 200 years, lest the Gentiles destroy each other, which they're trying to do now in the Middle East. We've done that, and God used us to do that, but we've done our job very imperfectly, and we have our own individual sins. We have our fornication, adultery, homosexuality, the murder of tens of millions of unborn children through abortion and all the other rottenness and vile behavior where we're getting God out of the public square and God's about had enough. That's why God's going to intervene one of these times and shake our nations and send Jesus back as king of kings. But he said, all the nations shall be blessed. Why? The next verse, verse 5, because Abraham obeyed. God has always wanted his faithful people to do what he said, not empty faith. Faith without works is dead. As you read in James 2, verse 26, and a number of other places, you've got to be willing to do what God said. Abraham, the father of the faithful, set that example again and again. They were blessed because, not just because Abraham believed with empty faith, but because he did what God said over and over. He left the promise, his own land and his relatives that came into this promised land, which was not very good at the time and had to dwell in tents. He had to be willing to sacrifice his own son in faith. 
He had to do this and that again and again to show he was willing to trust the God of creation, who later is called the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Israel. He obeyed my voice, kept my charge, the specific instruction, my commandments. Yes, the commandments existed back then. They were later codified as part of the whole legal system God gave Israel, but they existed from the beginning. God's very nature is in the ten words, as the Jews called them, the ten utterances, the ten commandments, the spiritual law of God that functions just as surely as the law of gravity functions. It does, and all of us need to understand that. So it's a very important thing. Abraham was willing to obey my commandments, my statutes. A number of them already existed in my laws. So God, who was this again dealing with Abraham? The Logos, the spokesman, who later became your Savior and my Savior, Jesus Christ. A little bit later in the Bible, turn on over to the next book, Exodus. The book of Exodus, and here we find God appearing to Moses. And it says in Exodus 19, Exodus 19, verse 18, Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the ever-living one descended upon it in fire. Who was this Yahweh? Who was this eternal? It was the one who became Jesus Christ. That's who it was. Mankind had never seen God before, Jesus said. Later, the apostle John wrote that back at 1 John 4, 12. No man has ever seen God at any time. 1 John 4, verse 12. But they did back here. And so Mount Sinai was just upset with smoke, and smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. The whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded longer and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him. They did hear God's voice. Then the eternal came down upon Mount Sinai. And then you read in chapter 20, verse 1, just to get the highlights. Then God spoke all these words. God? Who was this God? This is the God that later died for me. This is the God that created all of us through our ancestry. This is the God who made man and woman in his image. Jesus Christ, who, through whom God the Father created the whole universe. Christ spoke all these words. I am the eternal, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Yes, it was Jesus Christ who parted the Red Sea. It was Jesus Christ who sent the plagues on ancient Israel. It was Jesus Christ who did all these things, acting, of course, for God the Father. And brethren, don't ever be, think, be thinking that God may be jealous of Christ. He's not. He tells us over and over to honor the Son as you honor the Father. They are one. You worship them. They are one. You shall have no other gods before me. And yet he was acting for God the Father, and it includes both of them. You're not to make for yourself any carved image. You're not to make a picture or a carving of God. You can't take the great God and put that great being whose face shines like the sun and put him in a picture frame. At the front of the church I used to worship in, they had this little picture of Jesus up there, a typical Protestant picture. The guy didn't look anything like a Jew, whatever. I know what the Jews look like. He doesn't look like a Jew. He had long aquiline features and a beard with long hair, which Christ never had. Christ said it's a shame for a man to have long hair. Read it in 1 Corinthians 14. Christ inspired this book. He said that. That's what he said. 
So they get these fake pictures of these middle dark age artists who never were in Israel, don't even try to make the people look like Jews. And in their imagination, they put God, Christ, I am the Father one in a picture frame. That's blasphemy. That is wrong. Don't do that. You're not to look on them and bow down before them as people do before the idols all over Europe and all over the world in their churches. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. A lot of people on television today and even young people, they don't realize they just blat out the name of God or Christ in some careless way. That is the great being who gives us life and breath. Don't take his name lightly. That's a command. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. I grew up keeping Sunday all my life. I didn't know anything else. And Patty and Catherine, now Mrs. Ames, my little sisters, we would come padding down the stairs in our pajamas on Christmas morning before the Christmas tree, and we heard that Santa Claus sneaked down the chimney and brought his presents. Well, he didn't, because there isn't any Santa Claus, children. Sorry about that, Virginia. <laughs> if you read that, that story over and over, they published Yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. There's always been goodness and light and wonderful things. You better believe it. They have goodness and light and sweet parents and presence in the various communities in China, in the various communities even in the Muslim world, and all over the world. They have ways of worshiping their gods and their ideas of God, and they can have music and they have lights too. But they don't believe in the Christ of the Bible, never have, and never will, most of them, until Christ comes again and sets up the kingdom of God. They don't know about the God. We in the Protestant world, growing up in the Midwest, we just assumed everyone was like us. They're not like us. Most of the people on this earth have never acknowledged the name of Jesus Christ. Billions, with a B, have probably never even heard the name Jesus Christ. They know nothing about him. They don't keep Christmas and Easter and all that stuff, yet they're happy. They have families. They have laughter. They have their religious holidays. So you're to do what God says. Keep the Sabbath he gave. The seventh day, six days shall you labor and do your work, but the seventh day, and on your calendars you'll see which day the seventh day is. And most of even the encyclopedia articles acknowledge that. The seventh day is Saturday, although as God always counted time, Always in the Bible, it was from Friday evening to Saturday evening sunset. The way the Jews keep it happens to be correct. They preserve the oracles of God, as Paul tells us in Romans, the third chapter. The Jews did do that. Six days you'll labor, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You, your son, your daughter, manservant, maidservant, so on. For in six days, here's the point, the eternal, the ever-living one, Christ, God the Father, working with Christ, of course, working through Christ, made, created the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. So this day is holy time. A lot of you young people in the church here, and you young people around the world, you know about it. But you don't treat it like holy time. It's just another day where you can go out running around and do your own thing. You're going to wake up someday and be very sorry about that. And hopefully all of you will stop that and begin to worship the Creator because it points to Him. He rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Eternal blessed this space of time. He put His blessing in a certain period of time. He is here in a special way. 
I could have kept on in the First Methodist Church in Joplin all my life and heard sermon after sermon gone every single day up until I'm 76 years old. I would never have learned about the Sabbath, never have learned about the holy days, never have learned about God's, God's plan, probably would never have heard a single sermon on prophecy because in 19 years I never did. Just talk about the little Lord Jesus and sort of poetry and politics and nice thoughts and so on. My old Methodist grandmother, whom I loved dearly, was wonderful to me, but she tried to get me to read The Upper Room, this publication, a little thin thing uh, uh, shaped sort of like these cards I carry in my pocket about this size, but a little eight-page little uh, thing they put out. And in it, it tells you a little story, and it has a little prayer for the day, and so on. And I said, Grandmother, you could read this until your eyeballs fell out, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and you would never, ever understand about the true God or his plan or his purpose. And you wouldn't either. You could just read it literally until your eyeballs fell out, till hell freezes over, as they say. <laughs> you would never understand anything about the Bible because they don't understand anything about the Bible, and therefore they can't explain anything about the Bible and all this stuff the world puts out. Are they bad? No, they're nice people. Some of them are my relatives. They mean well. They're polite, you know. They're not trying to kill people. They just have not been called yet. And, of course, they believe the only program that really got Mr. Dick Ames in trouble, I get more vitriolic on my programs, as you know, and he's more careful, but we got thrown clear off a station out in West Texas, wasn't it, Mr. Pyle, because uh, he had this program on uh, the only day of salvation and showing God will give people a real chance. And, of course, they think that's a second chance. And a lot of the Protestants just hate that. I don't know why they hate it. They just hate the idea that somehow God's not going to burn everyone in hell if they don't accept Christ right now, I guess. And it really tears them up that there might be a chance for them. And, of course, it's not a second chance. It's a first genuine opportunity. Billions of these people never had a chance. And you knew people and brethren and visitors. Think about that. Does your church understand that? No, they don't, frankly. Only the church of God understands that. Only the church of God understands that. This is the church that understands the truth. The whole purpose of life, that there is a real opportunity coming for these people. God's not unfair. He's working out a purpose, a specific purpose and plan here below. So he tells them about the Sabbath. Therefore, honor then your father and mother. Tells them then the next command. Honor your father and mother. That's the first of the commands toward man. Because your father and mother at first stand in the place of God. They physically created you. They are your protector. They are your guides. Like God, later you learn that God is doing all that, but he's doing it through them a lot. When you're a little kid, they took care of you. They brought you into the earth. They watch over you. They deliver you. They protect you. They feed you. Honor them. You shall not murder. That's the second command toward man. That's the worst thing of all far as, you know, uh, the other commands are concerned, at least coming afterward, to take life clear away. But he starts out, honor your father and mother, because when you understand it, if you learn to love the true God, which the first four commands tell you how to do, then you will probably be willing to understand the rest of it, how to love human beings made in God's image. So the first command dealing with man tells you to honor the ones in place of God, your parents, 
because if you honor your parents, most parents have sense enough not to teach their children to kill and to show them they shouldn't kill, they shouldn't hurt, and so on. You shall not steal and you shall not commit adultery, excuse me, that's the next thing, which attacks the very basis of the family life. God's whole right society is built on the family. And if a man or a woman cheat on their mate and they go with someone else, it completely destroys that union. And they can never trust each other again in the same way. It hurts and hurts terribly and brings disgrace on that union and often causes it to break up and leaving the little children without a father, without a mother. You shall not steal. Don't take other people's property. You shall not bear false witness. What if God was a liar? You think about how important it is. What if someone lies to you and lies to you and lies to you? And then they come up after five years or whatever it is, even five months of lying and lying and say, well, I'm sorry, I really want to do better. What do you think? Well, they've been lying all the time. Why should I believe them this time? You don't know when they're telling the truth. You don't know when they're telling the truth. I know Mr. Armstrong talked about one guy and how he kept repenting and repenting. And he said, well, he's the best repenter in the whole church. But he says he doesn't really repent because repentance means change. And he won't change. Repentance means to be really sorry, terribly sorry, and so sorry you actually change. So if people saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, and yet they go right back and do it again, you can't trust them. And God can't trust them either. So think about that. Learn to tell the truth. We preach the truth. We teach the truth, and let's live the truth. Do not bear false witness. You shall not covet. Don't be lusting after your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's property, your neighbor's office. Some men and women are jealous if we ordain a deacon or deaconess. Well, I wish it could have been me, and I should have been there, or this other guy got this job, and I wanted. No, don't do that. Promotion comes neither from the east or from the west, but from God. God is the one, the Bible says directly. Proverbs, uh, it tells you back in the book of Proverbs and also in uh, Psalm 75, verse 6, I think it is. God is the one who lifts up one and puts another down. In the end, he's in charge. Put your faith and trust in God. Don't covet things, including offices or mates or anything else. You, you can see how that begins to tear a society apart when people begin to lust after things that they don't need or shouldn't have, can't pay for, don't deserve, wouldn't know how to take care of properly if they had it. Don't covet. That's the final command. The great God gave us a law to live by, a way of life. Christ gave us that law. Christ is the one who spoke the Ten Commandments. They are His commandments. They're not the commandments of an old-fashioned, mad God the Father. And they don't, there isn't any such God the Father like that. But it's not that. It's the commands of Christ and of the real God the Father who is filled with mercy and love and wisdom and gave these commandments. And Christ is the one who spoke them for the Father, a way of life. As I've said, they're just as sure as the law of gravity. And I hope all you young people can come to understand that. Mr. Armstrong used to explain that to all of us students in Ambassador College. If I drop this Bible, look, I don't have to take my hand and shove it down. I just let it go. I don't try to push it. I just let it go. It just comes down automatically. If you commit adultery, there is an automatic penalty. You may not understand that. But there is an automatic penalty. You begin to sear your mind 
against the real meaning of sex, against the sacredness of that union that God intended, you begin to sear your mind against the specialness and the beauty and sacredness of your own wife to you or your own husband, you begin to sear your mind to where then it's easier to do it again or to tell lies than to cover it up and then it bleeds to something else and then something else and then something else. You destroy the relationship that you have with God the minute you begin to do those things. It's automatically, stealing automatically causes you to water things down and to probably cover up and lie and other things as well. An automatic penalty. God doesn't have to have a whole legion of angels there to catch you at it. He knows every hair of your head is numbered. He knows exactly what you're doing and what you're thinking. But the point is, these are automatic laws, and if we keep them as a way of life, young people, we can be happy. Our marriages can be happier. Our lives can be happier. And we will be developing the character of Jesus Christ, which will fit us. Not that we earn our salvation, that's not it. But it will fit us where we could be kings and priests in God's kingdom. As Mr. Armstrong said, salvation is a gift. Yes, you're saved in a sense your past sins are forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. But you're saved with conditions. Conditions, meaning that you really do repent. Peter said... You know, Acts 2, verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And you shall then receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then. But the first thing is repent. And repent doesn't mean just to be sorry. It means to turn around and go the other way. Well, if you turn around and go the other way from sin, what is sin? Most of you begin know that. 1 John 3, 4, for any of you newer people. The first letter of John, the epistle of John, 1 John 3, verse 4, sin is the only direct specific definition of sin in the Bible. Sin is the transgression of the law. And he was not talking about traffic laws. They had donkey carts and horses and walking back there. They didn't have traffic laws like we understand them. He obviously was talking, as you know, about the law of God, the spiritual law, the Ten Commandments of the rest of the New Testament makes very, very clear. If you repent of breaking it, that means you start keeping it. That's a condition. You don't earn, but that's what you ought to be doing all along anyway. So if you repent of the wrong way, ask Christ's forgiveness for your past sins, and ask Him to keep cleaning you up, keep cleaning you up as you repent day by day as you make mistakes, not that you're living in sin or walking in sin, but you will make continue some mistakes as you go along as you grow in grace and in knowledge, then he cleans you up. He scrubs you out day by day, year by year, and you do better. Why? Because you're repenting day by day. Because his blood continues to cover your sins if you haven't sinned willfully. And Christ continues to forgive you as you do what the song said. I'll walk with God. If you sincerely try with all your heart through Christ in you to walk with God then you will walk right on over into his kingdom. That's what it's all about. So you have to understand that. It's so important. God wants you to have that kind of character. He's not going to shower eternal life and power and glory on a whole bunch of rebels who just go their own way and say, I don't need to keep your law. I don't need to live your way. I'm going to do what I want to do when I want to do and how I want to do it. Turn to 1 Samuel, if you would, brethren. 
1 Samuel, the story of King David, Mr. Amon was commenting on uh, David briefly, and I'm doing it here from a little different point of view. And 1 Samuel, oh, I'm turning past uh, where I meant to. 1 Samuel 17, and here David was going to fight this giant, this absolute giant, the Philistine. And uh, it says uh, in verse 43, So the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come out me with, with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David. Goliath began to use a lot of foul curse words. You just blankety blank little smart aleck, I'll wipe you off the face of the earth. You can hear it now. Some of you men, if you've had people deal with you like that, he was giving him the business. And David said, verse 45, You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you've defied. Here's this young man, about 18 or 20 years old at this time. He wasn't some little boy, by the way, but he wasn't fully seasoned yet as a warrior either. And I think this is inspiring. Who was this? Who's he talking about? He's talking about the one who died for you and me. The Lord God of the armies of Israel. That's our Savior. But he's going to fight for us one of these days. And he's going to come back as King of kings and Lord of lords. And you start reading about it in the book of Revelation, what he's going to do. He's going to shake this earth as it has never been shaken. Till people say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And they're going to finally be willing to listen to the truth and to change and to obey God's laws and to live his way of life. The Lord God of the armies of Israel. That's our Savior. He's our Savior. He's our merciful and faithful high priest. He's our living head. But he's also our coming king, Jesus Christ. The word, the Logos, the God of the Old Testament, the Lord God of the armies of Israel. He says, I'm coming to you in the name of the Lord God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the eternal will deliver you into my hand, as he says at the end of this verse, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And my brethren here and you brethren around the world, please think about this, and you better believe it. I may not be here to finish the work. I'm not saying I'll do it. I don't know that. I'm getting older. I'm just saying that someday, if we keep on the road we're going on and do it the right way, God will let us finish this work with power, and the world will know about the Lord God of the armies of Israel, and he will back us and help us get this message out more powerfully than you can now imagine. He can use a little Gideon's army to finish the job and never underestimate the power of that God, the Lord God of the armies of Israel. We're willing to do it his way if we're willing to keep his commandments and not water things down. He will use us. He will bless us. He will empower us. We've got to learn to walk with him, to walk with God, and have faith in that, and to know that that is exactly what's going to happen. Turn back to Matthew now in your New Testament, if you would, briefly. Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. I might tell our newer people, I drink this tea. It has honey in it. Because I've gotten older, my voice gives out easier, so it keeps me going here. Anyway, Matthew chapter 22, and uh, let's see if I can find my own marking here. And let's begin reading, brethren, 
uh, in verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Matthew 22, verse 41, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? You see, the coming anointed one. The word Christos, Christ, means the anointed one. A lot of them didn't know he was the Christ, even at this point, late in his ministry. They didn't know. Some of you think, well, we can't be the work of God because everybody does know about us. How many knew about Christ at the end of his life? Not too many. How many were gathered together even after his resurrection? 120. He wasn't trying to save the world yet, and he's not doing it now. What do you think about the Christ? He tells the religious leaders, whose son is he? And they said, the son of David. Many of their prophecies indicated that, which Christ was in the flesh, a descendant of David. And he said, how then does David in the spirit, see, guided by God's Holy Spirit, call him Lord? How can he be his son and also his Lord? Saying, as he does back in Psalm, uh, uh, list here, Psalm uh, 110, verse 1. You can check it up back there. He's quoting directly from Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit on my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord, the great God, obviously God the Father, said to God, uh, the God of David, David's Lord. Who was David's Lord? And David was the king of the greatest nation on earth when he finally became king and when this was written. He conquered all his enemies. He didn't have any Lord except Jesus Christ. The Christ, the immediate God, the one in the God family who watched over mankind from the very beginning, who walked and talked with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, the one whom God always spoke through, always dealt with mankind through. He was the God of David. So the Lord, the great God, spoke to my Lord, as he is quoting him here, sit at my right hand, which Christ is doing right now, till I make your enemies your footstool. Well, the Jewish rabbis were real smart. They're the smartest, most intelligent race on earth. They've got more top doctors and top scientists and all the other things proportionally than any, any peoples on the earth. But unless God calls people, they can't understand. Spiritual things come from God, and they didn't understand. And so if David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. They didn't know. But we can know, and it's very clear in the Bible, Christ was the Lord of the Old Testament. The Ten Commandments are not the word or the Ten Laws of some awesome God who's mad and mean and old-fashioned grandfather. They're the commandments of Jesus Christ, who with the Father planned them out, who for the Father spoke them to ancient Israel, our fathers, from the top of Mount Sinai. They're his law too. They're the law of God and Christ is God. So he is the one who is the Lord of David. So we want to always understand that brethren when you think about who is Christ, who is this Christ who's to live his life in us? Who is this Christ whom we're going to share glory with forever? He's the one who very at the very beginning existed with God out in eternity in the blackness of space, perhaps for millions or billions of years, helped plan out the whole idea of God reproducing himself, said, let's make beings in our image so we could share eternity with them and let these beings become like we are and genuine sons of God. When God brought Adam and brought all the animals to Adam and he named them in the Garden of Eden, remember, why he petted the horse and perhaps rubbed the side of the bear and 
maybe he kind of looked funny at the chickens and goats and so on walking around. And he thought, well, I can give all these creatures names, but there's something missing. <laughs> Something's missing. And then God brought this absolutely beautiful creature to him. And he said, that's it. <laughs> the woman. You see, man's name, of course, was Ish. And Eve's name was Isha, literally in the Hebrew, which means from Ish. She came right out from Ish. She was like Ish in every way except she had a female body. And so he thought well, that was beautiful. And it is beautiful and should be thought of as long as we use it in the right way and think of it in a right, clean, holy way and so on. That's what God did. So anyway, Christ is the one who did all of that and made us in his image. So let's understand he is our Christ. He is our creator. He is our savior. He loves us. He gives us every good and every perfect gift. And we need to really think of it that way. Turn to Philippians chapter 2 now, if you would. Back in Paul's writing in Philippians chapter 2. And let's begin reading here in verse 3. He tells the Philippian church, and this is in God's word for all of us, let nothing be done through selfish ambition. Don't be selfish. I want this next job and someone else gets to be a deacon or someone gets to be the department head. I'm going to be mad. No, don't be mad. Learn to be mad at yourself. If you need to be mad at someone, try to do better. But maybe it's not your fault. Maybe you have strengths in other areas. We're all made differently. Every one of us is made differently. Part of my job as a human leader in the work here is to try to put the square pegs in the square holes and the round pegs in the round holes and make the people fit. But I don't do that perfectly either. None of us do. Don't let anything be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind and genuine humility, esteem others better than himself. Try to realize this other human being is made in God's image. And this other human being has problems, and I can see his or her problems. But as God looks down from heaven and sees my problems, maybe my problems are actually worse in God's sight than his problems. And you have to understand that. I don't always understand that perfectly, but I try to. I can think, well, boy, I have all this knowledge. I've been in the work, and, and I can very easily, if I were to try to be vain, uh, think be very important. And yet I can look at some of you newer brethren and I can realize or the first man I ever baptized, I think the first one or one of the first ones, I think he was the first one. His name was A.M. Coffin. And being a young kid, I, I was just 21 years old and on this tour and I was converted, but I still had a youthful mind. I thought, wow, his name is Coffin and he's ready for the coffin. <laughs> no, he's, he's 84 years old. He was exactly four years, four times as old as I was. See, four times 21 is 84 and I helped baptize him as a nice old fellow. Later, he came out to Ambassador College all the way from Texas and helped uh, his millionaire friend buy a bunch of whole bunch of purebred Nubian goats to help the people and the, the, the veterans in this veterans hospital because it would help them get stronger. That's really good goat's milk. He was trying to do good. And later he came to the feast. He lived another two, three, five years. I don't know. He was converted. It turned out his life changed. It was grand, wonderful. And that was good. But I was very young, and I could compare myself with him or someone else like that today and say, boy, I've been in the work all these years. But what did Mr. Coffin do with what he had to do with? I don't know. I've told you the story, brethren, about Bill Hamburger, one of our original deacons, and the work in the college at Pasadena, how Bill came out from Texas, 
and he sold his peanut farm. His teeth were coming out. He was a bachelor, didn't know how to eat exactly, but he was a wonderful man, dedicated, loving, kind, patient. He gave himself, gave his pickup truck, gave his time, gave his money, everything, worked for years for no salary. And some of us evangelists were together one time while Bill, I think, was still alive. Maybe he had just died. And there were two or three, five evangelists at the occasion, if that means anything, which it really doesn't necessarily in God's sight. Many of the evangelists have fallen away. If you go look at the pictures of the old-time evangelists, by the way, I know who they are. I won't talk about them now, but they fell away. But we were saying, you know, maybe Bill will have a better reward in the kingdom than we will because he may have done more with what he had to do with than those of us younger men. See, I was converted at age 19. I had all four years of college. I had graduate school after that. I spent thousands of hours with Mr. Herbert Armstrong, and I way outlived Bill. He had died earlier. I think he was only in his 50s because of poor health and so forth. And I've had all these opportunities. So maybe God will look down someday and say, well, Rod Meredith, you could have been like the Apostle Paul, and you could have done much more with what you had to do with, and here you were, you know, seeing an occasional movie and taking time off to go to these nice restaurants and you weren't driving yourself day and night like Paul. And I can say that's right. I have not driven myself like the Apostle Paul. I've never laid in a pool of blood outside Lystra where they threw rocks at my head. I haven't gone through all those things, brethren. And God knows that. So don't get discouraged. Each one of you needs to do the best you can, the best you can with what you have to do with. And don't think that anyone's going to hold you down. In this work, I don't want to hold anyone down. As I get older, I face my mortality. I want every one of our men to achieve his full human potential, the other ministers and the wives as well. Every one, every one of us needs to fulfill our full human potential. And if I get in the way of that, God will deal with me. So understand, God wants all of us to look out for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Have that total outflowing concern which Christ had. I don't have it, but I'm working on it. I'm still a work in progress, as they say, and so are you. We're all still a work in progress. We've got to learn to have the mind of Christ. And then he describes that mind the most heroic, wonderful thing about Christ in the next few verses, of course, who, being in the form of God, did not consider robber to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. And as I've explained, that next phrase here comes from the Greek word, excuse me, kenosis. They call, they've had whole books about the kenosis of Christ. The word kenosis literally means emptying. How much did he empty himself? They argue over the details. But he emptied himself. He who had been with God from eternity was no longer at God's right hand for 33 and a half years. He whose face shone like the sun. He who had the voice like the sound of thunder, like the voice of many waters, no longer had that power. He who had all these things, that magnificence, gave that up and became a human being who was tempted in all points like as we are, as it says in Hebrews 4.15, and who as it explains here was so weak he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross, the kind of death where they spit on you, cursed you, took you out to be scourged, and they had the lictor, the Roman man who was trained, a lictor to, use, to give you the licking, officially knew how to use that whip to tear your hide off, 
and then ripped the hide off you until many men died from that beating before he even went to the cross. He knew that was coming. He'd seen men hang on the cross. He wasn't the only man ever hung on a cross. They often hung men on a cross who were despised murders or something at that time, and the Roman did, did that. He knew the suffering he was going through. He willingly did that. He would have been up there with God the Father, looked down on us as a bunch of ants down here, a bunch of grasshoppers, was willing to empty himself and go through that so that mankind could be forgiven, really forgiven of our sins and our vanity and selfishness and lust and greed and somehow be made right with God and have God's Holy Spirit. Don't water things down, you young people. Think about what Jesus Christ did for you, the Christ of the Bible. He did it for you. And he wants you to repent, every one of you in due time, and you people, older people. Many in God's church who are older. Water things down. You make excuses. You're still smoking, cussing, drinking too much, mistreating your wives, stealing, doing various things that are wrong. I know that. I don't mean you're all doing it. I mean we've had among God's people all down through the time people who've done that, those things. It hurts you. It doesn't hurt me. I don't know all your names. Don't think, where did he get this? Oh, he's got the goods on me. Yes, I've got the goods on you. The goods on you were written long ago back in Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart of man is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know it? <laughs> well, we all know if we understand human nature. And being in God's church 57 years, I've seen that again and again and again and again. How top evangelists, department heads, division heads played little political games. Some drank too much. Some had adultery. Some had other things. Some tried to overthrow Mr. Armstrong so they thought they'd get more power. Somehow that would make them more important if they could overthrow Mr. Armstrong. Did they think God wasn't around? Did they think he didn't know that even when they're thinking that in their minds? God knows all that stuff. Repent. Try to go the whole way. Let your life stand for something. We're nearing the end of an age. This church wants to teach and preach and live the right kind of Christianity. You were called to understand your purpose. Who are we? We're the church of the living God. We're the people of God. We're the body of Christ. And we should really stand for something. Christ was willing to empty himself, taking the form of a bond slave and coming the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient even to the death of the cross. Therefore, God honored that total giving of himself. God highly exalted him with a name above every name. So God will give you a name, an office, an opportunity, blessings, power, immortality, opportunities to help straighten out this whole world working with Jesus Christ as a king or priest. If you go all out, all out, don't go halfway. God doesn't want halfway Christians. He wants total Christians, brethren. I hope we can really understand that. Turn back to the first chapter here, if you would. Philippians chapter 1, I often read this to you, but I'll do it again. I don't apologize. He said in verse 19, For I know that this will turn out for my salvation, Philippians 1, 19, through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ. He loved Christ. Paul worshiped Christ, adored Christ, pictured Christ. 
Christ revealed himself to Paul directly in powerful visions and dreams for about three years over in Arabia. He had a personal, fantastic feeling, intimate feeling. I've often prayed that God would give some of us that type of thing where we really had that personal knowledge of Christ. Paul had that. That was wonderful. So now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. I don't care whether I live or die, Paul said, whatever God wants. That was his attitude. God didn't let him put a bunch of lies in here. For to me, to live is Christ. To live, what's the purpose of life? To Christ. It's to magnify Christ. It's to have Christ live in me. That's why I should live on, for Christ's sake, for Christ living within me. But to die is gain. Here he'd worked so hard. He had sores and injuries all over his body from all the beatings and the stonings. He thought many times at night as he was aching, perhaps with various forms of arthritis from the pain and other things he'd suffered, it'd be better just to go to sleep. But he said, for your sake, I think I'll keep on, he said in the following verses. Let's have that attitude, brethren, that Christ may be magnified in our bodies, whether by life or by death. We want to have it. We've given our lives to God. We don't play little games. We really mean it. Turn back to Luke, the 14th chapter. Luke 14, and please listen, all you young people all around the world, listen to this. This is what this church is about. This is what true Christianity is about. This is Jesus Christ speaking, the Son of God, the Creator of the heavens and the earth. Luke chapter 14, verse 25, great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said, if anyone, that means you, John Jones and Jane Smith and all the rest of you out there, whatever your name is. If anyone comes to me, if you want to be a Christian and does not hate, the Greek word definitely means love less. It's not a doctrine we have. All the authorities know by compare. It's a comparative term. You're not told to hate your parents. But if you do not love less, his father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, and his own life also. You learn to love your own life less than Christ because Christ is the one who gave you that life. He cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross, are you willing to go through tests and trials and suffering and persecution? You better be willing to. Be a soldier. Be like King David. Want to stand up for the Lord God of the armies of Israel. Get behind us in this work. Go out and work and pray and stir the world out there. We have need of a lot more dedicated young people all over this world. So do be willing to go through these things. Be a warrior. For which of you intending to build a tower? You're going to build a skyscraper? You're going to do something big? You better sit down first and count the cost. Are you really going to stick with it? Have you made the proper plans? Have you got the right education? And in this case, do you have the big loans from the big banks and insurance companies to build a skyscraper? Does your company have the expertise to do that? Do you have the will to see it right through even when things go bad along the way? Are you going to stay with it through thick and thin until it's finished? Mr. Armstrong started out to build Ambassador College. And two or three times during that time, as he says, he would go to bed and pray that God would take his life before the next morning. The banks were after him. The brethren were down on him. Some of the faculty were saying, even when I came there the next year, they were saying, when this thing folds up, when this thing folds up, they were down on him. But he had to just trust God. The next morning he'd wake up, repent, 
and go right on and say, I'm going to build this. I'm going to do this. The work of God is going to succeed. And we've got to have that attitude, brethren, through thick and thin. We're Christ warriors. We are Christians. And we've got to understand that. We're to be the bond slaves. And we're to be the ambassadors of Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. He says down in verse 33, So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has... In your heart and mind, you literally say it's all given to God. I don't have anything. It's not mine. My time is God's. My energy is God's. My family, my everything I have, my money, it's all God's. It belongs to Him. The church doesn't want you to kill yourself or give all your money all the way. No. You need to balance it. But in balance, putting the heavy balance on serving God, try to give to God everything you can as best you can. To still keep on and build your health and provide for your family and so on. But the attitude is to forsake all. And Christ makes that very clear. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It's neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, the manure pile, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. If you don't have salt, you don't have that zeal, you don't have that great enthusiasm to say, this is it. I'm going all out, then what are you good for? Christ does not want a lukewarm church, as I've said so many times. Read Revelation chapter 3 and verses 14 on. He doesn't describe the Laodiceans as having wrong doctrines or other things. He describes them as nice people who know the truth, when you read carefully, but lukewarm, lukewarm. They're not on fire for God. So don't let that happen to you. So we do need to be stirred up in the right way. Okay, go all out. How do you do this, brethren? You say, I can't do all this. No, you can't. And no, neither can I. I can't do this. It all comes back to my favorite verse and many other verses that say the same thing. Many verses essentially say the same thing. You know that. But Galatians 2.20 is my favorite. It just says it all in one verse very clearly. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 where Paul wrote, I'm crucified with Christ. I've given my life. Nevertheless, I live. I'm not dead. I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. See, it's not the human Paul. It's not the human John Jones or Jane Smith anymore. Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live with the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. You don't live by faith in the Son of God. You live by the faith of, and it is in the possessive in, that, in the original Greek there, and in verse 16 in that chapter, and also back in Revelation 14, verse 12. You see, here is the patience of the saints, the true saints. Here are those that keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus, Christ's faith in you. Through Christ living in you, through the Holy Spirit, He gives you the extra love. He gives you the extra strength. He gives you the extra wisdom. He is doing it in you and through you through the power of the Holy Spirit. Then it's Him doing it, not you doing it. And that's the only way I can do it and the only way you can do it. And we don't always do that perfectly, but we better try. We better make progress. We better grow and be the church of God. Be the ambassadors for Jesus Christ. That's who we are. That's why we're here. Turn then, if you would, at this point, brethren, to Colossians again. Colossians in your 
New Testament, and I'm going to begin reading here in chapter 3 this time. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. If then you were raised with Christ, if you've come up from the watery grave of baptism to give your life to God, seek those things which are above. Don't always worry. Say, well, we've got to get a second TV set, and we've got to get a third car, and we've got to get this and that and something else and keep up with the Joneses. That's not to be your thrust. It's not wrong to have nice things, but you better keep them in balance, and you better be sure that your interest in God and God's work and God's kingdom is way above all those things. I have to do that, and I need to do it better, and all of us here do. We've got to have that as the way above everything else attitude. Seek those things above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Let your mind be on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died. If you really gave your life to God, the old self is supposed to have died. You died. And your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life. Isn't that a beautiful expression when you think about it? When Christ who is our life. We don't have any life of and by ourselves if we truly are converted and Christ is living in us. Christ is our life. He's the one living within us. He's the one guiding us, helping us, delivering us. Our living head, our high priest, our protector. He's the one that's going to deliver us in the coming tribulation. He's our shield. He's our high tower. He's the rock of our salvation, the Lord God of the armies of Israel. He can take care of us. When Christ, who is our life, appears, he's going to come again soon. Then you also will appear with him in glory. Boy, that's something to look forward to, to think about literally exploding into a different dominion of existence to where at the resurrection we're promised by God again and again. We will rise again. We will meet him in the air. Then we will descend together with Jesus Christ to the top of the Mount of Olives, and we will help him then rule this earth. The world will be full of the knowledge of God as the ocean beds are full of water. Christ will set up his headquarters at Jerusalem and the law will go forth, the law of God, not talking about traffic laws. The law of God will be the law of the whole world. It will go forth all over the world. The Ten Commandments telling us how to live, how to love, how to serve God, how to serve and to love and to take care of one another, to love our neighbor as ourselves, that outflowing concern to really love other human beings and want to lay down our lives for them. That's what Christ wants us to be like. You will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members on the earth. Put these things to death. Fornication. Like to watch the Hollywood movies and all these things and the TV that show men and women in all these compromising positions. You young men can't do that and have clean minds. You know that. I'm glad I wrote grow up before it was as bad as it is now. Grew up, I should have said. It's sure bad now. I know you have a harder time than I did, and I had plenty of troubles. I wasn't a Sunday school teacher. But I had, didn't, wasn't surrounded by it like you guys are. And women are getting almost as bad as the men today. And there's sexual forwardness and watering things down and jumping in bed here and there and doing these things. It's awful. God does not appreciate that cheapening of the sex act, that cheapening of the very basis of marriage. He does not like that. It's hurting you. It's not hurting him. He's up in heaven. Fornication, uncleanness certainly would include homosexuality. 
and masturbation, all the pornography and filth and passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry, lusting in America especially after more and more and more. Because of these things, the wrath of God coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you once also walked when you live in them. Flee these things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language. Flee filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another. And be sure in verse 10, you put on the new man. Put on Jesus Christ, your Savior. Let him live his life in you through the Holy Spirit. And he said over here in verse 12, verse 14, I'm sorry. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Worship and love toward God love and kindness and outflowing concern for one another, love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God be in your hearts to which you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Brethren, you cannot understand all of this, even though I give you one sermon. You've got to keep reading this book for your sake, not my sake. Please read this book every day as best you can. Drink in of it. Feed upon it. Make it part of the way you think. You don't need to watch a lot of television. You don't need to watch a lot of computer stuff. Read the Bible. The word of your creator that gives you life and breath and calls you to be like he is someday. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly and learn to even sing praises to God. And verse 17, notice, and whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Do it as his servants, because you belong to him. Do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Live in the name of Jesus Christ. Walk and talk in the name of Jesus Christ. Everything you do should be in the name of Jesus Christ, because you're part of the church of God, which is the body of Christ. You're part of the team. You're bond slaves of Jesus Christ if you're really converted. You and I are ambassadors. Mr. Armstrong thought and prayed about that term many times. Ambassadors. We, brethren, are the ambassadors representing another kingdom that's going to come soon. We're the ambassadors of Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. That's who we are. That's what true Christianity is all about. And in one sense as well, that's why you were born.